I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. On the show today, we have Andy Stumpf. He is a former Navy SEAL a skydiver, world record wingsuit base jumper. What is that? It's scarier than skydiving. And he's pretty incredible. He talks about a lot of his SEAL training and how Why Not Now applies in every aspect of what they do and how intense things can get. Not only is the question, why not now, but it's why not me? I'm so grateful for his time on the show today and also beyond grateful for his service to our country. Enjoy Andy Stump. Andy, welcome to the show on a scale of one to 10. How are you doing today? Uh, is one good or is 10 good? <laughs> 10 is good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say I'm at about a nine. We're, do- we're doing good today. That's awesome. What's keeping you from a 10? Uh, I just, I think you always need to leave a little bit of a buffer for the unknown. Yeah. Instead of pegging it out, because then if what if something even more awesome happens later today, I'm already at the top. Yeah, that sounds good because we didn't offer up 11 as an option. So here we are. (laughs) Well, good. Thank you so much for your time. I've been researching you. And ever since we connected on Twitter, thank you so much to the Twitter gods that help me out all the time in connecting with people. Um, But I've been taking a look at your background and, and not only your time as a Navy SEAL, but also since you've you've retired and what you've done since then. And, and I can't wait to dive in. But before we do, let's start off as we typically do and talk through a why not now moment. So can you share a time when you had to ask yourself that question? And I'm sure there are many, <laughs> but a time when you just had to kind of stop in your tracks and say to yourself, why not now? We'll dissect it. Yeah. You know, so I was thinking back, you know, I knew that we were going to talk today. And so I was kind of trying to think back and focus a little bit more on uh, my military background because I spent the, the vast majority of my adult life doing that. And I was trying to think of a good concrete, like a moment where I was stopped in my tracks. And the realization that I came to is that the whole career, instead of being one moment or moments in time where that happened, the entire career is based around that mindset, it, you know, and it's we're taught at a super young age, at a very early age in training, and then it's reinforced throughout your SEAL career. Not only, you know, if something needs to get done, not only are you internally thinking, why don't I do that right now? So there's two questions. It's why not now? And then why not me? 
And basically what you're constantly doing is looking for work. So you're constantly asking yourself what needs to be done and then looking to be the person that goes and does it. And it's basically leading by example through your actions, which I think is the biggest and the most powerful thing that you can have, you know, by asking yourself those two things, you know, why not now and why not me? If you're, you know, wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you ask yourself that you're going to walk out the door as a leader. And I think you'll positively impact everybody around you. And, and so because you've been through this intense training and I have a good friend who's a SEAL and it's been just quite fascinating to, to see a little bit of what goes on, but there's so much, of course, <laughs> that I don't know, so much that, that you don't know. But as you're training, how, how did they teach you this kind of inherent way of asking yourself, why not now, why not me? What were some of the things that, that you did in training to get that locked into your DNA to where you just behaved under that premise all day, every day. Yeah. uh, Well, it's complex. Um, you know, and I had the benefit, obviously I went through SEAL training, but I had the benefit as, and I went back and I was an instructor for 18 months. And to say that the experiences were wildly different, uh, would be an understatement. One was enjoyable. One was not, but you also get to see the wheels and the mechanisms behind the curtain that the training is is driven by. And as a student, it's it can be very confusing because you don't necessarily understand the lesson that's being taught to you. It's not always a very clear and concise object lesson. Sometimes you're just being told to do something or act a certain way without any other clarification. When you go back, I had been a SEAL for 10 years already by the time I went back. I understood based on some experiences I had had in the real world why we did those things. And you can kind of look back and you're like, oh, okay, now this makes more sense. Uh, And, you know, one of them, the biggest thing, you know, when you join the military, most people think of the very stereotypical uh, full metal jacket, Marine Corps boot camp where you're getting yelled at. And let's just say Navy boot camp is not that intense. Uh, Marine Corps boot camp, I think, is actually that intense. The Navy is not. But the whole purpose of that is to begin to remove your center of universe feeling about yourself and to start realizing that you're part of a team and a part of a mechanism that you need to perform for it to perform. Now, when you get to BUDS, which for people who don't know what that is, it stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. It's the wide end of the filter in your journey to becoming a SEAL. One of the first things uh, that you're that you're told is that you're not allowed to go anywhere without a swim buddy. And, and that literally is just a, somebody that has to be with you. No more than six feet away from another human being for the next six months. And it takes about a week. Uh, and then you realize that that's the concept that's sticking and you learn to start working together. And when your swim buddy does something that's amazing, you both get to share in it. And when you do something that's terrible, you both get to share in it as well. And it really, after about a week, people stop moving. And you know, if they're told to do something, instead of just jumping up and taking off, they'll jump up and they'll look for somebody else and then they'll move together. So that's kind of the, the beginning nature of the process of how we, again, reinforce that teamwork. Uh, and and it's, it's more than teamwork. It's that sense of selflessness and the sense of, hey, I need to be really concerned with the person next to me more so even than just myself. And then we build on that concept with two people builds to four and four people builds to six. And, you know, and then that's the largest group you're ever going to generally be in in BUDS. 
And it's all performance-based. If your team of six does really well, you all share in it. If one person in your team of six does not do well, you all suffer individually, uh, you know, not individually, but you suffer as a group regardless of the actions of that individual. And it just, it's that reinforcement in mindset coupled with from the first day of training, the mantra is in the absence of leadership, you need to step up and take charge. And it's the combinations of those two things, always looking for something that needs to be done proactively and always being concerned with those people around you. I mean, I think that's a perfect combination. Uh, you know, that's, that's the answer to the why not now of being a SEAL. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. It's very helpful. And when you said, why not me, the context around that is, can you help me out there? I've, I've heard this a few times from other people, but I have a feeling your context and, and framework for this is a little bit different. So when you ask yourself that question. Sure. You know, it, it goes back to proactively looking for what needs to be done. Instead of being told what to do, be the person that's mm-hmm. searching for things that need to be done and don't wait for other people to do it. Do it yourself. You know, maybe you may not, might not, not even be the best person at doing it, but if you realize that there is a job that needs to be done, you need to, you know, step up and do it regardless of how tired you are and cold you are or hypo, you know, I mean, the, those are the, the external environmental tools that we have in training, but we're still looking for that person that regardless of how they feel, if there's something that needs to be done, they step up and do it. And it's, that's the beauty of the SEAL teams. And I think it's uh, a large misconception of the military in general, you know, because like I mentioned, the full metal jacket boot camp scene where the drill instructor is just yelling and you're basically getting discipline shoved down your throat, which works really well in that environment, but it's not a long-term solution to discipline. The SEAL teams are composed of people that are internally driven. They have that internal discipline because, like I said, they're asking themselves that question of, you know, what needs to be done right now, right now, and I'm going to do it. You know, why not me? That's And that's how those two concepts kind of come together. Very, very interesting. When you decided to, well, you, did you really decide to retire or you were medically kind of retired? How did that work? And can you talk through a little bit of of what happened? Was that from being in combat and, and I understand you were shot. Um, how did you end up winding up your career as a SEAL? It was, let's say 50% by choice and 50% being told that your, your time on the team here is over. I, I, I was shot in 2005 in the hip, uh, and I, it, that set me back quite a bit, but I was able to rehab and recover from that and actually, uh, deployed again in August of 2010 and came back to a, a desk job. I, I spent 12 years as an enlisted SEAL and then five years as an officer. So that last deployment I did in 2010 was as an officer and the career path is very different. Uh, the enlisted side of the house, you stay with your your feet on the ground, with your hands on a gun, the vast majority of your career. The officer side of the house, you have a few opportunities to do that, and then it becomes largely logistically based, where you're managing, you know, managing people through the the bureaucracy that is the Navy. So my career was arcing towards that, but if I had wanted to continue in my career. I would have had to do uh, two more deployments. There's mandatory career steps that you have to make if you want to be considered eligible for advancement or competitive for advancement. Uh, 
And so to do that, I would have had to do basically back-to-back uh, deployments, combat deployments again. With, you know, on, on top of that, I had already been a SEAL for, you know, 17 years. My body, especially my ankle, surprisingly enough, I got shot in the hip, but I have uh, most of my issues come from nerve damage in my ankle and my inability to stop a roll to the outside because the the bullet that hit me interacted with my sciatic nerve, so it short-circuits it, short-circuited it all the way from the point of where it entered my body all the way down to my ankle. And I wasn't I wasn't physically able to do that. The last deployment I did, I was I was successful at it, but there I was always nagging that my ankle was always nagging me. And I realized that when I came home from that deployment, that was probably the last time I could safely do the job. So it was a, you know, a combination of, I, I mean, I wish I could still be doing the job today. I, I, I miss it every single day. I think I miss the guys more than anything. Uh, but then realizing I couldn't physically meet the criteria of the job. And so my plan actually was to just separate from the military. And I, ha- I was within five days of my contract uh, coming up to be ready to expire. And I went in to get my physical to be discharged from the Navy. And I ran into an awesome doctor who was a prior SEAL. And he would not sign the paperwork because of the call it the, you know, the, the litany of issues medically that I had encountered through, you know, 17 years of just being a SEAL, whether it be joint issues or concussion issues. Uh, obviously the gunshot kind of led, led the charge on all those issues, but he wouldn't sign it for me because he didn't feel that it was documented well enough. So I would be able to enter into the disability system when I got out of the military. And at first, I was extremely mad at him because I, I had plans for the outside. I already had things lined up. And him not signing the paperwork delayed me about uh, about eight months. But in that time, they sent me to an amazing clinic at Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. called NICO, the National Intrepid Center of Excellence. And it's this all-encompassing 30-day immersive and inclusive medical treatment center. And they were able to, you know, run a battery of tests and all sorts of diagnostic stuff. And I left there with about 150 pages, uh, you know, the most precise medical documentation you could ever have. And because of that documentation and that doctor not just signing the paperwork, they chose to medically retire me instead of separate me from service. So I was able to actually get my pension as if I had done the full 20 years, even though I was short of that time. Wow, what wisdom in that that doctor and um I was so mad at him. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I was so mad at him for about 2 weeks and then I and and then when I I got to Nico, I was like, wow. I, he really it really changed the trajectory for me because otherwise I would have been, you know, I I would have been adrift in trying to get disability payments through the mm-hmm. the VA which can take a long time. It, it was just so much better for not only me, but for my family. So I, yeah, I owe that guy a lot for sure. Do you still keep in touch with him by chance? He's off doing his own thing. I actually, I think I'll link you guys up. His name is uh, Kirk Parsley. He has some crazy research on uh, sleep. Ooh. He has uh, like a, a, basically a, I don't want to call it a cocktail because people are going to think like negatively about it, but it's a concoction of all sorts of things that try to get your body back simulating you know, the circadian rhythm. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure I'm murdering the description of this and he could correct you, but it's a, it's a couple different things. And he gave it to me and like, 
you take it and you better be sitting down in about an hour because you were going to sleep. And it's some (laughs) of the most restorative sleep I've ever had. And I actually think he's just getting ready to write a book or release his book on it. But he's a, he's a total ninja when it comes to sleep stuff. That's awesome. Very cool. I wrote his name down. So thanks for that. Yeah. Fascinating too. So, okay. So let's continue on kind of chronologically here. You, you are retired, medically retired. Um, thank goodness. And fast forward a bit and all of a sudden you're doing world records in your (laughs) wingsuit, right? So first of all, can you describe to all of us exactly what a wingsuit is and what, what you're doing, but how did this happen? Yes. Yeah, no, my life's a mess. And people ask me what I'm up to these days. And that's my least favorite question is what do you do for a living? So, but part of it is I'm a professional skydiver and base jumper. And I, I started uh, skydiving when I was in the military. And for me, it was one of those things. The first time I jumped out of an airplane, I just fell in love with it. My first actual jump was a static line jump at Fort Benning. And I was not in love with that at all. I actually hate the static line jumping, but the free fall portion, the first time I did a free fall jump, it just clicked with me. And so I've always, I've always been passionate about it since then. And I would always uh, do all the jump trips that I could and go to all the air schools that I could while I was in the military. And then when I got out, I was able to really dive in and pursue it as much as I wanted to, which is where I started uh, messing around with jumping a wingsuit. And if people don't know what a wingsuit is, I'd Go to YouTube and put uh, just put into the search bar wingsuit skydiving or wingsuit base jumping. It's a it's a fabric suit, uh, and it you know your arms are fully enclosed, your legs are fully enclosed. A lot of the times you just look like a flying triangle, and instead of falling straight down through the air, you're basically flying forward at about 120 miles an hour and falling at maybe 30 to 40 miles an hour, as opposed to if you just jump out of an airplane in shorts and a t-shirt, you'll fall down to the earth at 120. So it's a completely different sensation. I mean, you're, you're really, it feels like you're flying an airplane. It's, it's, I mean, I, I, I've tried to not smile while I'm doing it and I've <laughs> failed every time. It's impossible. That's so fun. But the world, yeah. So the world record came about, uh, you know, shortly after I was medically retired, I literally, you drive into work one day and you go to, uh, you go to what's called PSD, the uh, personnel support detachment. That's what they call it in the Navy. And you get a document called a DD 214, which lists out, it's a, it's a written record of what you did in your career, lists your jobs, it lists your qualifications, it lists your awards, it lists your schools and you sign it and then you leave. And when you drive off base, you're out of the military. So one day you're in the military, the next day you're out of the military. You literally and figuratively hang up a uniform in your closet. And for me, you know, you turn around and you're still the same person. And I had lost an outlet that I didn't realize was, you know, critically important for me. You know, in my head, I, I used to think that my job in the Navy was important. You know, it had impact. We were able to you know, to do things that actually made a difference. And then it was, it was gone. I mean, it was the only job I ever wanted to have since I was 11 years old for reasons I can't even articulate other than very, very broadly. It just was magnetizing for me and it was gone. And I really struggled with that. I didn't, I didn't even realize how much I struggled with it for about a year and a half. It just kind of felt adrift. And a buddy of mine, 
actually came up with the suggestion of trying to do something uh, along the fundraising lines with the Navy SEAL Foundation. And it was actually his idea because I was jumping wingsuits at that time. And he was like, he, he, for whatever reason, for whatever random intersection of fate, he had been researching or Googling world records when it came to wingsuits. And he was like, you know, why don't you try to break the record in your wingsuit? And, you know, he worked for a company called Killcliffe, which is a, a drink company that was also founded by an ex-SEAL. The company said that they would get behind it to support the cost, and all of it would be around trying to get as much, get as many eyes as possible on the jump, so then we could lateral it, turn it into a fundraising effort, which is exactly what we ended up doing. And in doing that, I found a sense of purpose again. It, it was it was awesome because it gave me it gave me something to direct myself towards, where I had had that void for like at least a year and a half. And I came to the realization that although I would like nothing more than to still go into work every day and work with the guys, I can't do that. But the next best thing I can do is to try to support their families, especially in the event of something catastrophic happening, whether it be in training, whether it be in combat, because there's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mess left behind when something happens and helping those families is the next best thing that I can do because in the end it's helping the guys because they don't have to worry about that when they're overseas. So that's what I did. I dove headlong into it. Um, I researched literally. is literally, <laughs> yes, correct. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> literally dove head, head first into it with a smile on my face. Cause like I said, even under the oxygen mask, I was smiling my ass off and, uh, yeah. And I, and it ended up working out really well. I would say I'm a, an average wingsuit pilot. The reason I think I was able to break the record is that, there was a four-year gap in between the previous record holder, and the technology in the suits is just leaps and bounds ahead of what they were back then. So I had the advantage of speed and of glide, uh, and it just worked out really well. So it uh, we raised about $150,000 for the Navy SEAL Foundation, which goes directly to support the families and the kids. And yeah, it was great. And, and people ask me why I chose to do that. And my, the easiest answer that I can give them is that I don't know how to juggle chainsaws. If I knew <laughs> how to do that, I would have done that. But I knew how to skydive, so I went with the skydiving route. Amazing. So 18 miles, is that the world record that you, you hit? 18.25 miles from when I exited the aircraft until when my parachute deployed. And then there was actually two world records, which is pretty cool, all in the same jump because they break the distances up. So when your feet leave the airplane until your parachute comes off your back and is fully open as one measurement, then the other measurement is from your parachute opening to when your feet touch the ground, they combine those two. So there's one was in flight and then one was absolute distance. Okay. Amazing. So, so you break this record and I see, I mean, following you on Instagram is like, it's like candy. <laughs> I mean, I come from kind of the world of social communication and media and content, I guess you'd say. And it's like, you're a dream for any kind of content, of course. So I see you're still doing this. Um, and yeah, I just did a trip last week, but that was, I'm still wingsuit jumping all the time. But yeah, I did a wingsuit base jumping trip just last week, which was amazing. Can I learn? So I've been skydiving once and it was a blast. I just have not gone again just for, I don't know why, but I think the solo, of course it was tandem. Can anyone learn to do this? I mean, what kind of training is, is involved? Shockingly, 
not that much. Uh, and, and I like to be honest with people. I mean, like, let's just be serious here. We're just playing around with gravity. Oh, you know, yeah, we're no going from a high. Yeah, we're going from a high object and we're jumping off of it or out of it. And gravity's kind of taking over. So when I did my first jump, I actually went through a civilian uh, jump program called AFF, Accelerated Freefall. And if people want to learn how to skydive, it's as easy as going online. And where, whatever city you live in, I mean, literally Google skydiving in, fill in the blank. And you'd be surprised. There's drop zones all over the U.S. In San Diego, where I used to live, there was three within an hour drive. And I went on a Friday, and I did, uh, I think it was six hours of ground school, where you talk about the concepts of falling through the air, how you can control your body, how you can move forward or side to side or do turns or recover from being unstable. You learn how to deploy your parachute. You learn about the parachute, how to deal with it. Uh, if there's a malfunction, how to you know cut away your main and deploy your reserve. And then I did my first jump Friday afternoon. Uh-huh. And the a- yeah, and the AFF program is only seven or eight jumps long, depending on your performance. So I did the entire course starting on a Friday. I graduated the course on a Sunday midday. It was jumping on my own by Sunday in the afternoon. So the barriers to entry are not high. And there's people who jump well into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And the difference between skydiving and obviously the suit and the distance, but then the parachute deploys and do you land just as you would for skydiving when you're doing the wingsuit? Well, you can land a wingsuit without a parachute, but only once. So if you want to do it more than once, meaning you do, if you don't want to die, you have to deploy your parachute, okay. even though quite, quite a few people have tried it without deploying their mm. parachute, yet to have a success. So yeah, you deploy your parachute, and then the suit, when it's in the air and when it's flying, it looks like one continuous piece of fabric. Mm-hmm. But as soon as your parachute opens, you actually, there's zippers on your arms, so you totally unzip, and then your arms are free. And you unzip each one of your legs as well. So the suit is just kind of... It, when you're on the ground or when you're under the skydiving canopy, the suit looks terrible. It just looks like fabric flapping all over the place. So as soon as you do that, as soon as you unzip and you're flying your parachute, it's the same as any other skydive. Okay. What's your favorite place that you've ever jumped? Oh, man. I would have to say Switzerland. I go there at least once a year. I'm going to do a trip there probably late August, early September, and I'll go spend two weeks hiking through the Alps to these amazing mountain peaks, you know, in a, in a backpack, I have my helmet, my wingsuit and a base jumping parachute all hooked up. And, you know, to be able to hike for a couple of hours with really close friends, get up to an exit point, get on your prom dress slash straight jacket, step to the edge of a cliff and jump off together. I mean, it's, uh, my vocabulary fails to describe how amazing that sensation is. Oh my gosh. Is there anything you always say to yourself in your mind right before you jump or do you still get those <laughs> like nerves or do you count down? I mean, oh. <laughs> well, like, so the skydiving world, you know, people look at skydiving as being very high risk where, whereas I don't know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. In the spectrum of things that I do, skydiving is very moderate to low risk just because you have two parachutes, and you have altitude. You're jumping out of an airplane. If something goes wrong, you have time to deal with it. Uh, so I don't, I, don't get too, I don't get too bent out of shape skydiving. I'm very cognizant of where danger is lurking. I'm always, I'm always on the hunt and search for trying to find danger before it finds me. 
But when you step into the base jumping world, you go from having two parachutes to having only one. So you have to be much more careful in how you pack it. And you're jumping off of a, something that a fixed object. And, you know, base stands for building, antenna, span, or earth. So uh, the variety of type of fixed objects. My personal favorite is earth. I love hiking in the backcountry and just figuring out how to, we're going to get to a location that maybe is tough to access. But getting there and just and, you know, thinking all the way through what you're going to do and then doing it successfully. But when you're jumping off of a cliff, it, you're much closer to the ground and you have much less time to deal with anything that could happen. And yeah, I have a lot of internal conversations <laughs> when I'm base jumping. Because, I mean, it, the reality is you're scared out of your mind. Every alarm bell in your body is going off and it's telling you, don't do this. You like, why are you standing on the edge of a cliff? Human beings are hardwired not to like that sensation. And you basically control that fear and turn it into the most crystal clear laser like focus that I've ever had on the next three seconds of your life. And this, what I say every time before I jump, and this is, believe me, this is nothing special. I think everybody says this is a countdown from three. And I don't count down from 10 because I think I would chicken out if I counted down from 10. So it's just, Three, two, one, see ya. And you just crouch down and push off into the abyss as hard as you can. Oh, my gosh. This is so cool. This is so cool. <laughs> oh, I want to do it. I want to do it. Um, okay, so switching gears for just a moment. I have all these questions for you, um, one of which, how do you keep your mind healthy, Andy? You know, it's by finding those moments of focus that I was just telling you about. I, I really love the sensation of flying my wingsuit, but it's it's not why I jump or at best – it's 50% of why I jump. Although I don't get uh, very emotionally or mentally concerned skydiving, that sensation of pushing the limit, you know, because the, the cool thing is, is that it, 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 there's no there when it comes to skydiving. There's always something else to learn. You can always move the line forward, at least incrementally, until you're at a place you didn't even know existed. And finding those challenges and constantly pushing myself is huge for me, for my mental clarity. And then in the base jumping world, it's pretty amazing how regardless the day that you had, like you could have the worst day of your life where you don't have enough money in your checking account to cover your mortgage. You just had a crazy argument with your significant other. Things aren't going the way that you want it to go. But as you're zipping up in your suit and you're getting closer to that point where you're actually going to put your toes on the edge, it's very – it's surreal how those, those peripheral things, they start to strip away. You know, you're not really worried about how much money you have when you're standing on the edge. You're not really worried about the argument you just have with your significant other five seconds before you jump because you're so focused on the next three seconds of your life. And then you, you commit to it and you control and contain that, that fear and that hesitation and you, you force yourself to drive forward. You have an amazing flight and, you know, flying the wingsuit base jumping feels exactly like it does skydiving after about four seconds, the suit feels the same. So you, you know how to fly, you're back in your comfort zone, you're flying, you can fly close to terrain or with your friends. And I've had this happen to me so many times, like I'm having a, just a crappy day. I'll go and I'll do a base jump and I stand there in the landing area and you're happy to be alive. And it just, it just helps you filter through all the bullshit. And it, it, for me, like it gives me more 
ability to be tolerant with my kids, like the little things that they do that, you know, generally would irritate me to death. I just have more tolerance for it. It's like, you know what? That's not as big of a deal as I'm making it. I'm making it a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. The money thing, you know what? It's going to work itself out. It's just a reset for me physically and emotionally. And I think I'd be lost without it. The clarity that you get prior is, um, gosh, it's kind of like a like a cleanse for the mind, it sounds like. Just a complete recommitment, reset. It's been written about a lot. I mean, I think I've most traditionally heard it called the flow state. A lot of athletes can get into it just because of that focus before a competition of any kind. And again, if I knew how to juggle chainsaws, maybe I would get the flow state by juggling chainsaws. But I don't know how to do that. So I just got to stick with what I know. Stick with what you know and keep <laughs> breaking world records. No big deal. Yeah. Uh, so, so Hunted, the TV show. Tell me a little bit about <laughs> this. <laughs> so I've made some bad decisions in my life. And one of them was agreeing to do a TV show. But, you know, it, kind of like a litmus test for me is if somebody pitches an idea to me and I'll say to myself, does it sound like a good story at the end of the day or a good experience? And I didn't want to say I got offered a TV show and I didn't do it. So I said, screw it. You know, I did a, it was a scripted or non-scripted reality television show that was based as a, it was a competition and there was two aspects. There was, uh, what was it? I can't even remember how many couples there were at this point. I think there were 16, 16 people. So eight couples, if they could evade for 28 days, they got $250,000. So then there was eight pairs of hunters looking for them, trying to gather information. And then there was a command center uh, comprised of a variety of people from intelligence specialists who were aggregating all the metadata, you know, pulling everything from cell phone to bank transactions, social media profiling. And then there was me. So, and you know, basically everything I've outlined so far is absolutely nothing like what I used to do for a living. So I was surprised that they offered me the job and I just kind of tried to, I tried to think through the problems like I systematically would from a tactical perspective of what's simple and what makes sense. And they did, I mean, at the end of the day, it was a game show, you know, and they were filming it on camera. So there were artificialities that were interjected by that. Uh, You know, one of the biggest ones is that there's a cameraman's union, so you can't film any time that you want to, you have a limited amount Mm -hmm. of time. So there was like a, okay, hey guys, you guys ready to play freeze tag? And we would start. And then at some arbitrary hour, we would have to stop. So, So it was, yep. Well, yeah. So that's, I mean, and again, that all gets edited out, but they did the best that they could. But that's basically what it was. I call it freeze tag for adults because you had to actually, the hunters had to come touch you and say, your time on the run is over, which is, in my mind, basically freeze tag. So uh, it was an interesting experience. I would not do it again, but I'm glad that I did. There you go. Well, thank you yeah. for sharing. I wasn't too. I started looking it up a little <laughs> bit prior, but I didn't know know one way or another if it was great experience or not for you. But uh, I'm sure you you took away and learned some things from it. It was very new. So, and I looked at it like mm-hmm. that, and and I met some really cool people. I mean, that that was the biggest thing. That's that's not a bad thing at all. So, right before we hopped on, you mentioned you just moved from San Diego to Montana. And it was a bit of a why not now moment for you. Tell me why. Where do you start? So, <laughs> I mean, let's just, the, the differences between San Diego and Montana are many, mm-hmm. and they're diverse. Uh, I saw an awesome bumper sticker 
yesterday. It said, summers in Montana are amazing. Last year, it happened on Tuesday. Because most people associate Montana with the winters, which are very rough, for sure. So my wife and I, my wife was born in Montana. She moved out of Montana when she was, I think, 10 or 11. So she's always had the desire to come back. It's amazing to me to meet people from Montana. They, They are always pulled to come back to the state. And I get it. Like, I've heard it called God's country. It's tough to go outside and not be totally in awe of the terrain that you see around you. So she, I met her, we lived in San Diego. We got married in San Diego and we ended up having kids. We have three amazing kids. I got a 13 year old an 11 year old and a nine year old. And we were in San Diego, but we kept coming back to Montana to visit. And every time we were here, it was just, we didn't want to leave. Like, the difference in our children when they were up here. And it's just, it was a better environment and a better fit for us. But we were always felt like we were stuck in San Diego. And last year for Christmas, we came up here and spent three weeks, three weeks at an investment property that we have. And it was amazing. You know, we, we couldn't get the kids to come inside. I literally was concerned like for hypothermia. I was like, (laughs) okay, you're coming inside. Your face is blue. Like you've had enough, which is normally with my kids. I'm like, put your damn phone down or, you know, get away from the screen. It was the exact opposite experience. So when we got back from that trip, we literally sat down and we're like, what are we doing? Why are we staying in San Diego? Why are we not moving to Montana? And that was kind of the moment that we had. Like, if we don't do it now, we're not going to do it because my son is a year from going into high school. He's getting ready to start eighth grade. Mm -hmm. I don't want to uproot him right before the high school experience without a social circle. So it really was, we either do this now or we don't do it. What are we waiting for? It was our why not now moment. And we basically both, we wrote out a list of pros and cons to Montana versus uh, California. And there was, the only reason we lived in California is because we, we owned a house there and my kids went to school there. Both of those problems are fixable. So we dove headfirst into it, put our house on the market got an offer on our house, made an offer on a house up here. The offer on our house fell through. We had to get an extension. We got another buyer in. It was, there was a lot of uh, empty wine bottles and stress flying everywhere. <laughs> and, but we made our way through it and we've, we've been here for three days and I'm already, you know, again, seeing that positive change because we chose to fall forward into that, you know, why not now moment. Good for you. Wow. It's, similar for so many families, so many couples, they, they want and they crave to move somewhere, but it just, sometimes they feel so stuck. And, um, and so when you, when you got back from that vacation, the family trip up or up here, I say up here as if we're all the same up in the North, I'm in South Dakota and I came from San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're all just in the same neighborhood when you came up here. Um, did you literally sit down and have a conversation, you know, at the kitchen table type of thing? And that was your why not now moment. I mean, it sounds like it was brewing because of the trip, but when was the green light? We, we did actually sit down as a family and because, you know, I don't want to be authoritarian with my kids. I wanted them involved. Like this is, this is what we saw from you guys when we were up there. This is what we think it could be for you. And they, they had some turns, of course, being, you know, their social circle and, and a little bit of fear of the unknown and, you know, where would we live and all the standard kid questions. And we answered them. And I think at the end of that conversation, there, there was no hesitation. And I don't know if we actually literally slapped the table, but that conversation was that moment. And we called our real estate agent the next day and the house was listed a week later. 
Look at you. That's a pretty big why not now moment. And and it's it may not be the most unique, but it's on a lot of people's minds. So And 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 I'm just like anybody else. Like I had I could have introduced or created or fabricated as many reasons as I wanted to as to why it would have been impossible or why I couldn't have done it. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's a choice. And I'm I'm really glad we made that choice. Beautiful country too. Oh, so, amazing. Yeah, especially for what you do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so with the future, Andy, and anything else that's coming to mind as you think about why not now, anything that, that's been brewing, uh, and and maybe it has nothing to do with, you know, your livelihood of, and, and career, but have you been thinking about doing anything that now it's time to ask yourself, why not now? You know, I don't have a lot of things that I, that I want to do, because if I come to a point where something interests me, I go do it. Uh, you know, I, I tell my kids all the time and I remind myself, you know, you only get one lap around the track. You might as well fill it up on your way around. So when I'm presented with moments of, you know, here's an example, recently started a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And it was, you know what? People keep telling me that this is something that I should look at doing it. Why aren't I doing this? It seems interesting. I get to have interesting conversations with people. Why not now? And boom. So I started it. So instead of wondering what it would be like, I'm going to figure out what it feels like. Uh, I don't know. I actually don't know what's on the horizon. I mean, I think right now the, our family's cup is pretty full and not of being busy, but of just being complete and being satisfied. But I guarantee you the next opportunity that presents itself, if it looks like it's something that can be fruitful or interesting, uh, I'm going to drive forward at it. Yeah. It's just a, in your DNA, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's not really something that you, you tend to kind of stop and, and think about it seems like, and that's, that's well, practice. Why, yeah. Would you say that yeah, that's practice? Wait? Yeah. For, I, I would say it's absolutely practice. I mean, I, I don't think, I know there's a lot of differences between, you know, human beings, but on the grand scale, I think we're all very similar. I I have noticed just in my limited experience with highly successful or even highly influential people, at the end of the day, they're not they're not really that different than anybody else, but they take action quicker than most people. Instead of sitting around wondering if or how or could they, they do. And I'd rather be on that side of the on that side of the coin. Absolutely. You learn quicker too. <laughs> you fall, oh, you learn, fall yeah, down you a lot quicker. <laughs> yeah. Yep, you learn through that up. experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now you do speak and you, you do help and consult with executives in the business world. Is that correct? I do. And I love it because I realized a few years ago that, uh, I love teaching. I love seeing the light bulb come on in people's, in people's heads. So I worked for a company called CrossFit, which is a strength and conditioning company, for about eight years. The first four, I, I taught the introduction seminars, and I spoke every weekend. And I always, I always really enjoyed it, and I, I couldn't, in, couldn't figure out why. And then I just finally realized that it wasn't the speaking that I liked. It was answering questions and, and connecting the dots for people. And then <clears throat> you know, the public speaking thing began – very slowly, just through friends, companies. I never had any desire to be a public speaker, but it grew over time. And I also really enjoyed doing that. And I came to the realization that it's exactly the same thing. Public speaking 
is just all I'm trying to do is take my experiences from a career that most people think is very unique and impart them on a completely different community and draw the parallels between leadership and teamwork and integrity and discipline in ways that people can understand it. And I see that same light firing off. You know, executives know exactly the definition of teamwork. You know, nobody fails at that. They always fail at execution, not definition. And to give people very small practical tips or things that I've seen or give them examples of mistakes that I have made and just to try to just show how it's all interconnected, I love it. So it's it's growing. I have no idea where it's going, but I really like doing it. And yeah, I mean, it's I, I love the teaching aspect. Great. And and when you go out and you're speaking with, let's say, a business audience and you give feedback, of course, what seems to resonate the most with them about what you're saying? Is there is there something specific, whether it be tiny or or just in general, that you feel you're able to apply from from the world that you have lived in um, to their world? More often than not, the feedback is that they're surprised in the similarities between combat leadership and business leadership. And I, I mean, when I talk about leadership, you know, because I get this all the time, a company will call and say, hey, can you, can you come and talk to us about our sector's leadership? You know, fill in the blank, the financial sector or real estate sector or whatever, food industry sector. I'm like, sure, whatever, I'll come talk to you. And then I open with, listen, there's only two types of leadership. There's good leadership and there's bad. That's all there is. If you want to try to put a title into your sector-specific leadership, what you're really doing is you're painting, it, you're painting your sector with an excuse because there's good principles and there's bad. And the reason people pay attention to the principles of leadership inside of the SEAL teams is because the time between a bad leadership decision and a catastrophic event could be seconds. In business, what I have found is that the biggest difference is time, especially in the financial markets. You know, you can get away with making bad decisions because the result isn't instantaneous. Your timeline is very protracted. And but again, it's the same principles. Like if you're a leader, like you know, humility being the single most important leadership quality. That's is the same same true of a uh, you know Fortune 100 executive. Or organization. So they're often surprised. They think that the SEAL teams, that we operate in this incredibly unique environment where we have a very special set of rules and principles, and we don't. We just have a highly effective structure and set of rules and principles that we follow. And I've gone to some companies that function incredibly well as a team, uh, and they're very high performing. And what did I find? The exact same principles that we used in the SEAL teams. It's good. There's good leadership, and then there's bad. There's good teamwork, and then there's bad. So it's that it's that realization that wow, okay, you know, it's we're not as unique as most people think. That's awesome. I'm glad that your your knowledge and wisdom is spreading throughout the corporate uh, business world because I think that that's a, a good thing. Uh, there's a lot of changes going on, of course, in that environment. And at the beginning, at the top of the show, you mentioned something you. In SEAL training, you ba- you're, you're taught to not be at the center of your own universe. Or what was that phrase that you said? Because it really yeah. So you know when you when you're assigned a swim buddy, and your actions now directly impact somebody else, and somebody else's Im- actions directly impact you. I equate it to 
most people I see live in a world of me, me, me. They are the center of their known universe. And when you start caring more about the person to your left or right than yourself as an individual, you become a community of we, 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 which is what the SEAL teams are. So it's just an attempt to remove that person's thought process that gravity starts and stops with them and that it should start and stop with the team. Very cool. That's, that's very cool. One last question, and this is something I really struggle with, so maybe you can help me. Okay. <laughs> I am on a lifelong journey of trying to better understand when to make things happen versus let them happen. And with all of the training you've had and everything you've been through, these insane experiences, what, how do you answer that question? Or how do you really dive into, I guess you can call it intuition if you want, but what, what's your gauge or your tool set for determining when to make it happen versus let things happen? Because sometimes when I make things happen, I, it causes a mess. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. That's actually a super broad uh, question. But I, I, think, I think we all struggle with this, right? We all want to force the world into what we want it to be. And I had a, a great friend who we were talking one day, and I forget how it came up, but he drew two concentric circles. So there's a small concentric circle in the middle and then a larger concentric circle overlaying it. And he put in the middle, circle of influence. And then he put in the larger circle, circle of concern. So everything in your life falls into one of those two circles. Some of them you can influence. Some of them you can waste your time being concerned about. If you look around, and I see this all the time, and I'm completely guilty of doing this as well, I spend the vast majority of my time worrying about things that I have no control over. Whereas if I focus on myself and focus on the things that I actually have influence over, I personally have found it almost doesn't matter what the rest of the world throws at you. And and I'll and I, and I call that just being prepared as a human. And I can make a little bit of a correlation from my old job. So I've been on hundreds of combat operations. And we did a very immense amount of planning and strategy and studying and preparation for those operations. And we brief every single one with what, what it is we think we're going to do and where we think things are going to be and how we think people are going to react. And out of those hundreds of combat operations, exactly zero of them have gone as we planned. And over time, what you realize is that you do as much as you can to prepare yourself, and then you just have to play the cards as you're dealt them, as opposed to picking up a card and trying to force it into something that you want it to be. Because you can't turn an ace of spades into a four of clubs. And it's really dangerous in combat when you get tied to the plan as opposed to being tied to success. And when you're tied to a plan, it usually means the person that created the plan has an ego that is tied to the plan. And they want to successfully complete the plan, which is wrong. You want to successfully complete the mission, which requires you know, the leader to be egoless and very humble. And if you can get to that point where instead of trying to force you know, a combat target into what you want it to be, if you can just step back and see what the world is presenting you and just play those cards, you're much more successful. Everybody is safer. 
you know, your odds of success go through the roof. And I think that's very true of life as well, too, because believe me, I have plenty of aspirations and desires and I have the way that I want the world to be and the world doesn't give a rip. So I just prepare myself as much as possible and then constantly tell myself to focus on the things that I can control. That's good. I have my diagram here. I've all my notes. I'll definitely be referring back. And um, thank you it's so tough much. One. It's, that, <laughs> the, the, the circle of influence, circle of concern, like mm-hmm. list down, like if you step back and be very objective and write down the things that worry you throughout the day. When I did that, almost all of them fell into the circle of concern, not circle of influence. It was crazy. I was worried about things that I couldn't actually influence or change. And if you think about it, how much time and energy you waste doing that, it was very helpful for me. Absolutely. And then if you look at your circle of influence, that's basically your why not now target, your, your bullseye, you right? Yep. Um, awesome. And and let's make sure we we mention your podcast, Cleared Hot. Is that correct? Cleared Hot. Yes. It's one of my favorite radio calls because right after you say that, they drop bombs. And I like that. Wow. Okay, then. <laughs> well, there you have it. And yep. um, where can we find it? SoundCloud, iTunes, all the... It's it's hosted on SoundCloud, but yeah, it's the I don't even know what RSS feed means, but it pushes it to iTunes and Stitcher and all that stuff. Good deal, good deal. We don't need to know what it means as long as it works, right? That's it's <laughs> magic. I'm assuming it that there's a wizard behind my screen that does stuff. I don't even know. Yep, yep, in the cloud. Awesome. Yep. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time and wisdom, and it's a blast following you on social. And a thrill, literally. So uh, I'll let you know when I'm getting ready to start my wingsuit jumping. Um, it's, it might be a minute or two. I think I should start with more skydiving first. <laughs> but take take your time. Take baby steps. Okay. You, know, like, you see people who want to jump into it, and it's like, yeah, let's just take your time. Take your time. Take your time. I will. Yep. I will. That's uh, that'll be fun. That's a why not now for me. There you go. There you go. And, and thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I want to hear what your why not now is. Please share it with me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Amy Jo Martin. I'll send a signed copy of my New York Times bestselling book, Renegades Write the Rules to the first 200 people who listen, rate, and leave an honest review of the podcast in iTunes. Once you've left a rating and review on iTunes, just email your iTunes handle name and your mailing address to whynotnow at amyjomartin.com, and we'll get your package in the mail to you. For detailed show notes, head to amyjomartin.com forward slash whynotnow. That's where you'll find links to things we discussed on the show, special offers, and how you can keep in touch with guests. Hat tip to my buddies Ash and Devin at Rock Salt Music for our tunes today. You just listened to the talented John Coggins in Let's Go and Let It Ride. And a jump high five to my talented husband, Richard Gruer for producing the show and being patient with me. See you next time. Until then, why not now?